Hello, everybody. This is Raj. I'm Ashwin. And I'm Eddie. And this is Blood Cancer Talks. So Blood Cancer Talks is a podcast exclusively dedicated to hematologic malignancies, where we bring in content experts who live and breathe a particular topic, and we delve into the biology and management of diseases. For today's episode, we are excited to talk about the management of multiple myeloma in low-middle income countries. This episode was actually inspired by a recent piece in Lancet Hematology by Dr. Andres Gomez named The Underrepresented Majority. The article elegantly highlighted the challenges of treating myeloma in low-income countries, especially given the high cost and lack of universal access. And this has created a situation currently that while on one hand, in high-income countries, we're talking about bringing drugs like Siltacil or bispecific antibodies upfront or in early relapse, in, low, in certain low-middle-income countries, we don't have access to some of the basic drugs like bortezomib or lenalidomide, which creates a lot of disparities in access in multiple myeloma. We are honored to have two myeloma experts with us, Dr. Andres Gomez de Leon, Professor of Hematology at UANL, Monterrey, Mexico, and Dr. Aditya Jandial, Clinical Hematologist at PGI Chandigarh in India. So first, let's do some quick introductions. Dr. Gomez, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your clinical and research focus? Hey, and Ashwin, and nice for you to have me. I'm very honored to be here. Thank you for the invitation. And first, I'd like to clarify for your audience that I am by no means a myeloma expert. So I would like to make that disclaimer. I do treat a lot of patients with multiple myeloma, though, both in my two jobs. I have one job, an academic job in a university hospital here in my city, Monterrey, which is a city in the northeastern part of Mexico, close to the U.S. border. It's an industrial city. It's the third largest city in Monterrey. So we have a lot of patients in Mexico. We have a lot of patients here. And I also treat patients in a private clinic. So I have the fortune of being a physician in two different worlds. So that was the perspective of the paper you alluded to. Thank you. We are glad to have you, Andres. And Dr. Jandial, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your clinical and research focus? Hello, everyone. Thank you for having me on this podcast. I'm working as a clinical hematologist at PGI Chandigarh. And it is one of the largest tertiary care centers in northern India. And I completed my clinical hematology training in 2019. And since then, I am working at this institute as a senior research associate, a kind of ad hoc junior faculty position. And in clinic, I see patients with benign and malignant heme disorders, the adult patients with these disorders. And my research focus is plasma cell dyscrasias, mainly myeloma and amyloidosis. Sounds good. For, for this episode today, we will go over a case. And then as we go along in the case, we will discuss the diagnostic workup and management along the entire disease course of multiple myeloma with input from both of you as to how the treatment and practice patterns are in Mexico and India. Let's start with the case. So let's say we have a 52-year-old male in our clinic with a suspected newly diagnosed multiple myeloma presenting with edemia, with multiple lytic lesions, along with a pathologic fracture of the femur and has been referred to a hematologist for a high suspicion of multiple myeloma, although the remaining diagnostic workup has not been performed yet. So with that background, what diagnostic workup would you typically perform at this point when you see a newly diagnosed patient in your clinic? Andres? So this patient that has a pretty clear picture of active myeloma. So I guess we would start to, to look for the clone. And we usually do a bone marrow aspirate, some flow cytometry studies. 
we don't really do bone marrow biopsy for all myeloma patients, which can maybe be considered a little controversial. So with that in mind, we usually do have access to conventional electrophoresis, testing, immunofixation, light chain analysis. I'm fortunate to work in a place where the lab does its own testing, but most of the other centers have to do it as a send out. And a lot of people still send out to the U.S. So it's a big issue because you have a long turnaround time with the traveling of the sample across borders. And then a patient with active myeloma can go undiagnosed for quite a while before you get those results back. So that's why it's important to work with fostering your own lab techniques and so on. We don't have mass spec, but we do have pretty good flow and pretty good immunofixation and light chain analysis. Sounds good. Do you, Andres, do you guys do CD138 selected fish testing at baseline for all patients with myeloma? That's a great question. We are starting recently to do that, but we have not done that for quite a long time, even though we do have pretty good flow and fish testing. And the issue is that there was not a lot of practical implications in the management of patients, right? So if you have to do an expensive test that does not impact your treatment choices, then why do you make the patient pay for it? And that also comes to mind with the way our university works. And that's everything is paid out of pocket by patients. So when you are at the clinic, you really need to know the cost of everything and how are those results going to impact the treatment choices And even if you order a fish, maybe the patient won't afford the treatment. So you really got to be smart to think about why you're going to test and why. So if you don't see the treatment changing, then why would you order the test? I realize prognostic implications are relevant and patients want to know their prognosis. But do we even really know the prognosis of a high-risk patient with myeloma that lives in our context? I would argue we don't. Those are That's the way we think about the fish. But now we're getting a little more specialized and have a little more money to spend and to waste. So we now have this flow sorted fish. Sounds good. Aditya, how about in India? Is CD138 selected fish? Like in what percentage of patients undergo that at diagnosis? As I said, I'm working in a tertiary care research institute. So... On an average, we are seeing around 50 to 70 new myeloma patients every year. Okay. Till 2018, I would say we were not having this facility of interface fish in-house. But after that, we are doing it on majority of our patients. And I would like to add that recently, some of the centers in India are actually doing sequential testing with the help of probes in the context of interface fish. Like after CD138 enrichment, they are putting probes for 17P and IGH break apart. And if IGH break apart is positive, then maybe looking for translocation 1114 or other translocations in a sequential manner. So that is one strategy that some of the labs in India are sorting to just to save resources. I'm not a pathologist, so I might not be able to like delve more into the detail of this. But yeah. At baseline, because ours is a public hospital, so the investigations are available at a subsidized rate. So wherever feasible at baseline, we try to get this information for most of our patients. Sounds good. Does that mean that how subsidized, what proportion, say, I don't know, for an initial myeloma diagnostic workup, 
Uh, is that a big expense to the patients? Are you similarly selective so, uh, to Andres about which tests you order because you're worried about bankrupting the patient, for example? Yeah, just to give you a context, so the myeloma fish panel in our institute costs around $80, less than that, I would say. The cost of serum protein electrophoresis, serum free light chain assays is also something that is like less than $25. Overall cost of diagnostics, when we talk about like diagnostic workup in a public sector hospital, it is much less. Having said that, since we have kind of healthcare setup where we have majority of patients seeking healthcare needs in private setup, the cost in the private hospitals is definitely high. It is about three to four times the, the cost of diagnostics in, a, in any public sector hospital. So definitely that is a limitation. And that is one of the reasons why when we see patients referred to our center from other private centers or patients who have received some therapy prior to coming to our hospitals, they might not be having this fish myeloma fish done at baseline. I agree with Dr. Andre to some extent that in MIC, in many patients, actually the treatment decision making may not be something that one approach fits all. In some patients, we have to allude to something called as minimum, optimum, or extended workup. So majority of patients who have limited resources may be having some, something called as minimum set of diagnostics tests at baseline. And in, in terms of access to the public hospital, does everyone have access to kind of those subsidized options or is, is it only some people have access? In India, I would say the specialized hematology departments are available in a limited number of public sector hospitals. So like uh, our hospital is located in northern part of India and it caters to a large population, I would say around five to six states. And we see around 45 to 50,000 patients every day. I'm talking about all hematology patients. So we see patients who are traveling 200 to 300 kilometers overnight to reach 5 a.m. in the at the clinic, fall in queue, wait for whole day to get consultation with the hematologist, and spend next night maybe under a tree or in the parking lot to get investigations done the next morning and get back to the home next evening. So that is this is the the limitation in access to specialized hematology care in India. Yeah, sounds, sounds like they have to make a lot of effort and can be very tricky. Yes. As Andres was saying that if a patient is paying out of pocket, and let's say if it's $80, and they, if they could rather use that money to for one month of lenalidomide, for example, I would rather use that money there than spending that on a fish panel when if push comes to shove like that. So that makes sense. I think I wanted to quickly go over baseline imaging before we move on to treatment. What Typically, do you guys do for baseline imaging, what modality do you use in patients with myeloma, like skeletal survey, low-dose CT, PET CT, whole body MRI? Again, may not be a one-size-fit-all, but what is what imaging do you usually use, Aditya? So at our center, we have moved to low-dose whole body CT last three to four years, you would say. Before that, we were doing skeletal survey. And only in patients where we are suspecting extramedullary disease, there only we are going ahead with PET CT because of we have like long waiting period to get a PET scan done at our center and outside out of hospital the cost is high. So low dose whole body CT is the bare minimum and sometimes we see patients reaching our center with just a skeletal survey. If the skeletal survey is showing lytic lesions yeah. filled everywhere, then we might not go ahead with low dose CT also. Sounds good. And Andres, do have access to low dose CT. 
and also we have a PET. But then again, the issue with the cost is relevant. So most patients do not get a PET, so they get only low dose CT. And even I argue in the private setting, it's difficult to get a PET because usually at the baseline, if the diagnosis has not been performed, then the insurance company doesn't pay for anything. Along, a lot of times patients need to pay, for example, for the first marrow, for the fish testing and for the PET. Then you can do the, all the bureaucracy to get the insurance to, to acknowledge the disease. So even in the private setting where insurance policies can be quite large, Sometimes we choose not to do fish and not to do PET because it can be very expensive for the patients that even they are insured, but maybe the out-of-pocket expenses are considerable. So this also affects our, the way we treat patients in the private clinic. Now, if they are diagnosed in hospital, then that is much easier because the insurance company just gets over it right at the bat and it's much easier to order everything. So this also affects the way we treat patients in the university, directly affects the way you do in the private setting as well. So it's, it's interesting because even my private care patients, I don't treat them necessarily like you would in the US. So just wanted to make some, a couple of quick comments regarding the PET CT. We have a very small, we come across very small subset of patients where we have dilemma of smoldering versus active multiple myeloma. There we have, there the threshold for PET CT in our institute, we keep it on a lower side. And being a research institute, we have access to whole body diffusion weighted MRI. And we do it in the context of research studies, not in all patients as such. That's good. Eddie? I just want to follow up with Andres and ask what proportion of patients have access to insurance, private insurance where they can have kind of very broader scope of subsidized care? That's a great question. I would say between 5% to 10% of the population has private insurance, depends on the region of the country. And so really 90% of, Mex of Mexicans don't have access to private insurance. Now, when you do have private insurance, the options are very similar, at least in the first three to four treatment lines, as you do in the States and in Europe. But the issue for 90% of the population, then they either they have a government type insurance where they have access to limited drugs and limited testing. And it's interesting because the, the government in the these public institutions have actually subsidized the treatment with pharmaceutical industry. So a lot of pharma companies have these programs for electrophoresis testing or fish or even imaging studies. So they the companies pay for that and the government institutions do not do any of that. They do not invest in specialized labs, in specialized facilities, only limited to the maybe Mexico City, which is the capital, and a few selected centers. So it's interesting. And everything gets sent to abroad. So I always try to work with the industry to tell them that they should pay for the studies, but to have them done locally, not as send-outs. So it's, a, it's an interesting phenomenon as well. Yes, I was going to ask you why um, why so many places still send out the tests because it's presumably more expensive, but you've explained exactly why that happens and the kind of unintended consequences sometimes these types of policies where, where industry thinks they're being helpful, which in one sense they are, can have actually a kind of off-target effect of diverting or preventing capacity building locally. I did want to move on and ask a little bit about 
induction treatment. So if we assume that this patient that Raj used us to doesn't have any major comorbidities and is what we would consider transplant eligible, what approach would you take to induction? How does cost factor in, into things when you're thinking about what your approach to induction is? As of now, BRD is our preferred induction regimen in uh, majority of patients, unless until they have renal dysfunction that makes us choose VCD or VTD as the induction. And as soon as the renal function gets back to normal, we switch to VRD. Having said that, we actually didn't have this liberty until three or four years ago. And uh, way back in 2014, 2015, we see a lot of patient records where induction regimen in the form of CTD or melphalon, prednisolone, thalidomide used to be given in poor patients. And the access to VRD has improved in last few years because of the fact that risks has, have come up. And the cost of VRD every month is like as low as $100. It is quite accessible. And I would just briefly touch upon the pharmacoeconomics of treatment of myeloma in India. If I talk about it, your patients spend money out of their pocket for treatment, close to 60%. 10 to 15% patients have access to private insurance. And the remaining 15 to 20% used to have funding from state and federal governments. So recently, one of the government-funded health scheme called Ayushman Bharat has come up and it provides treatment expenses up to $6,000 per family per year. So that many of our patients in last two, three years are getting medications through this scheme. So that is helping them a lot. So we are not facing so much problem as far as VRD induction is concerned in the upfront treatment of newly diagnosed multiple myeloma. Thanks. How about you, Andres? The public setting, we similarly to, to Aditya, we have historically used a lot of CTD, so cyclophosphamide, thalidomide, DEX. And for a few years now, we have access to proteasome inhibitors. So we've just replaced the cyclophosphamide for bortezomib and use VTD as our first line regimen, as a, our first alternative. And then that gets tricky on the later treatment lines, which we can discuss later. But I think this mirrors what we see around the country. So in fact, in most places, they don't have access to PIs in the first line. Even in the largest insurance government type coverage, they still don't use bortezomib as a first line treatment. It's a big problem. Some types of insurance can have different coverages, but overall, if you have myeloma and are diagnosed in Mexico, you won't receive what is considered a first-line treatment in the reviews and guidelines published by the U.S. or European investigators. And that's very it's a, not uncomfortable feeling because we all read the same papers. So it doesn't matter if I'm in Mexico, I read the same things you do. So I follow the same people on Twitter as you do, and I read this, go to Ash, and I go to all the same conferences. But it's such a, it's discouraging to see all these things that are happening in the first line treatment and not being able to access it. And that being the reality for most humans that are alive, makes me wonder whether that is really the standard treatment. Yeah. Can we really call it that? Or should it be called a different thing? So just semantics, but being practical and maybe mindful of the realities of the world. How should guidelines and reviews be written? I just We recently did a review of 
who are the editors of hematology journals. The top index journals in the JCR, the Journal of Citation Reports. And these are all journals from high-income countries. Therefore, the editors are people from, or not from, but working in high-income countries. So that means that most of the top science is not for us. It's for only the US, North America, and Europe. So it's, it's, it's an interesting problem. You might argue then we should develop our own guidelines and our own data to guide our therapy. But do we have the research capacity to do that? Are our guidelines going to be of high quality? So these are the kind of things I think about when I'm taking a shower or running or talking to you guys. That, that's a great point, Andres. And as you've been in many review articles lately, even Dara VRD, for example, is considered to be the new standard of care. But Daratumumab is extremely expensive and the access is very limited, even in relapsed refractory setting, let alone in newly diagnosed setting. So that's definitely... Andres, I was just curious, given the rev limit is generic now in India and it's very cheap, is it the same in Mexico? If somebody wants to pay out of pocket and do VRD, Bortezomib and rev limit, both of them being generic now, can they get it at a cheaper price, If even if the insurance is not paying? There is no generic lenalidomide in Mexico. That means there's this same issue in the US with the patent wars and all of these okay. strate- interesting strategies by the industry to these patents. So we don't have and we're not going to in the near future and there you can import drugs for a specific patient it's not illegal but you need to ask permission for the national regulatory authority and in fact i have imported lenalidomide for from india for a patient that cannot afford mexican rev limit so you actually can do that but it's, it's complicated. And there's also blood market type stuff that you can come around. But then it again, it's an ethical issue. If your patient is dying and you don't have any options and they're from a magical place, this box of lenalidomide from India suddenly appears, what are you going to do? Are you going to be rigid and say, I don't know where this medicine is coming from, so you shouldn't take it? Or are you going to risk it? And then the patient will have also share some of the responsibility and maybe get better with this drug, regardless of if it's coming from a kosher pathway. <laughs> Sounds good. I was actually going to ask this a bit later, but seeing as you brought it up, Andres, I'd love to ask you about this now, which is that my research group works a lot not me personally, but my group works a lot on patents and patent laws and patents are obviously designed to incentivize companies to innovate by giving them a monopoly. But that obviously has a pretty adverse outcome in, as you say, the majority of the world where, especially with the sort of raft of new oncology drugs that that now exist are prohibitively expensive for much of the world. I wonder if you have any thoughts on how we might move forward on on this, especially thinking about it becomes tricky when you think about something like CAR-T where it costs a lot to actually manufacture, but something like lenalidomide or um, other small molecule drugs, which are actually very cheap to make. To me, it seems like a pretty urgent and under-discussed health policy issue that that these kind of artificial, these human-created monopolies are really stopping a lot of the world getting access to drugs that are actually very cheap to, to make. Definitely, I agree. And I think a lot has to do with our lack of capacity for advocacy. Physicians are 
trained to treat patients, to care for them. We are not taught to do research. So we must learn to do research on our own terms. We are also not taught to advocate to the authorities or to get together and to have a presence on the Senate and on these with the lawmakers. They don't even know what my loma is, but they are influenced by industry because they have a bunch of money and they can afford to pay for lobbyists that go to some senator and tell them that they need to okay this or that. So our, most of our societies do not have an advocacy arm. They also do not have an education for the layman or for the layperson or for patients. And we also don't have a lot of formal patient advocacy groups. And we don't have also these societies like the International Myeloma Foundation and so on that have a lot of presence here. So it's like the Wild West. And there's a lot of people pushing for the industry, but there's just nobody pushing the other way. So I think that's a very big part. And that's why I like all of these, all these connections and these conversations that can get a bigger voice using social networking and podcasts and everything you're doing can increase the voice and the, make people aware of this. And that I'm sure that happens as well in other countries. But I'd love to know what Aditya has to tell us because India is actually in it a very example that, that we should follow. And I've in fact brought this up, not for myeloma, but for other drugs, even in the Senate in Mexico City. So how does India does it? I think you have made, um, raised two very relevant points. First is regarding the patents and second is regarding the advocacy. So the patent thing, I completely agree with you. These are the policies of evergreening of patents. The companies are not losing their, uh, not going to lose their monopoly. Having said that, I would say that because of tremendous pharmaceutical industry that India possesses, even before the patent ends, you can expect the generic maybe in the next week. So the country has the capacity to manufacture the generics and generics are working. They are benefiting the patients. So I think the next thing that Andre has raised is very important. The advocacy part of any patient group, whether it is from the societies, whether it, from, whether it is from the patient groups. I will just cite one example. So India is a $3 trillion economy, $3 trillion. So the health allocated, the GDP that is allocated for the health is 2%. And out of the funds which are allocated for healthcare expenditure, there is a particular the allocation is for the hemophilia patients. It's an interesting story in, in India. And it is because of the advocacy. The patients, the hemophilia group, they, they have fought legal battles across multiple state high courts. And I think they have won the battle and they have created a kind of space and the government was actually pushed to allocate a particular budget for the clotting factor concentrates for provision of these patients. And I think the similar framework may be applied for the other group of disorders and that may be helped. Sounds good. Yeah, thanks for the great discussion. So now let's delve into a topic that, that in which we have seen a lot of controversies, especially in high-income countries in the past year, that is early transplant versus delayed transplant in newly diagnosed myeloma. So as you all know, there were two large randomized control trials. One was the IFM 2009 trial, and the other was determination trial. Both trials had VRD induction regimen, and then they randomized patients to early transplant, that is upfront transplant after a few cycles of VRD versus delayed <laughs> 
transplanted relapse. And in both of these trials were done in high-income countries, one in France and one in the US. And both of them pretty much showed the same thing, that there was a robust progression-free survival benefit of early transplant over delayed transplant. But so far, as of currently with the current follow-up, no overall survival benefit has emerged of early transplant over delayed transplant. So I wanted to get your opinion on this data. Do you think these data apply to your practice? And what would you recommend to this case, a 52-year-old male who presented to your clinic if transplant was available for that patient? Andres? So here we need to think about the long term. So what's going to happen to this person down multiple treatment lines? So with this in context, since we're not sure what he can eventually access, then transplant is a very big part when you have only a couple of tools at hand. So we still recommend transplant in first remission for our patients and with the old argument that you never know if you're going to get a second chance. So with these lower or oral regimens with a lower efficacy, so maybe you won't get another chance. So it's also a matter of resources. Patients have more resources at the beginning than at the end of the treatment of a disease. And also, it also it's important to consider the cost of transplant. So with us, the transplant is very cheap. We do transplants for myeloma as outpatients, almost invariably, regardless of the age. We don't freeze cells. So we harvest patients and immediately condition them and do outpatient transplantation. And this makes the procedure cost a little more than a month's worth of, of rev limit. So with that in mind, then it's a pretty, pretty effective, cost-effective therapy. So now, if you would ask me to, what, do I know whether transplant in my country actually increases the survival of patients with myeloma, then the response is, I don't know, but it makes sense to keep doing it. Now in the private setting, when I have a lot of tools at hand, I'm not so sure. So maybe if the patient is a little fragile or does not have the support at home or is not very interested in transplant or is afraid or has a demanding job and so on, maybe this data has made me lean more towards being more lenient. These studies may lean you a little bit against the transplant side. What do you think? I, yeah, Aditya, go ahead. So I just wanted to raise this point that the debate of early versus late transplant, it might or might not be beneficial for high income countries, but definitely it is going to harm the LMICs. Transplant is a cheap, effective tool. There is no doubt about it. When I say this in the context of LMICs, I think we should appreciate that it is not early versus delayed transplant. It is transplant or no transplant for majority of our patients. The attrition rate is very high. We do not have a very good access to stem cell cryopreservation. And ultimately, it is not about early or late transplant. I would say in the context of LMIC in India, I would say it is all about the ability, access, and willingness to undergo transplant. I think these are the important aspects. And I would just briefly touch upon the public and private hospital divide in India. So I'm working in a public sector hospital. We do around 15 plus minus two transplants and the autologous transplants for myeloma every year. My Our waiting list for transplant is 45 patients. We are not going, we are not including patients for the next two years at least. 
at the same time there are centers in india where the beds are maybe vacant so there is lot of heterogeneity in terms of public versus private hospitals because of maybe differences in perception and obviously there is some sort of i would say it is an unsaid thing but there is a kind of professional bias against transplant also we see sometimes patient getting referred to our center for transplant by a hospital which has a hematologist but because the medical oncologist and hematologist maybe uh, they are not on the same board so they are not talking to each other so i think the referral for transplant is something that is also like the timeliness of referral is also something that is very important yeah it's always tricky with limited treatment we do have randomized trials prior to that of novel agents showing that transplant versus no transplant there was clearly an overall survival benefit so i think that still probably applies if there is limited treatment yeah. so just want to add one more point that because the os benefit we are not seeing in the context of ifm and determination is because of effective post protocol therapies that you have we in india don't have that luxury so i think we should interpret those results in the context of available treatments post transplant that are available yeah definitely and daratumumab as you alluded to is very expensive yeah. and many people may not be able to afford that definitely these the results from these trials cannot be extrapolated to to the lmic setting now moving on to the maintenance therapy as we know lenalidomide maintenance therapy post transplant has demonstrated a clinically meaningful overall survival benefit versus no maintenance which has established an endomad maintenance as standard of care do you routinely use len maintenance in your practice and if not what are the barriers of you to using lenalidomide yeah so we are using len maintenance as a routine and i would say that apart from those related toxicity in the form of cytopenias and intolerability sometimes we see that is something that forces us to decrease the dose to something like 5 mg daily or maybe 5 mg on alternate days and the cost is generally not an issue as i said earlier so len maintenance we have seen in our practice is quite well tolerated by patients and we are for majority of our patients we are continuing it till progression and so depends where i am of course in the public setting we usually only have either thalidomide and we can start using thalidomide maintenance and either that or bortezomib maintenance because we have generic bortezomib and it's pretty cheap so patients can access that and it's an interesting question a brilliant hematologist in puebla asks why cannot you give a person thalidomide and then when neuropathy ensues you can switch to lenalidomide probably that that wouldn't make a dent in the efficacy of the drug and you can save a lot of money doing that and maybe it's less financially toxic so can the patient be better off if you do that and the other interesting finding you see when you give maintenance that is something i've seen in the private setting that sometimes lenalidomide is not so well tolerated right you get these rashes or diarrhea or patients feel sick and the patient is in cr and it's i say that it's a happy it's a happy moment in the treatment of a patient when you need to stop a drug because they will be treatment free and in remission and even if we know that they may have an increased likelihood of progression they are so happy to be of meds and just maybe they only moment after diagnosis that they are free from you and from 
the medications, that is most often a happy moment and not a sad one. What is your experience? Yeah, I totally agree. After transplant in myeloma, unfortunately, we cannot give them a treatment-free remission. They are on always on some treatment. Although Revlimid maintenance, Revlimid being a pill, it's not that bad. But still, as you said, some patients have terrible side effects, including fatigue, diarrhea, rash, and we have to dose reduce. And yeah, so overall in the US, what we typically do, what in although there is not robust data, but many of us are doing what I do in my practice. I check MRD once a year. And if there are two MRD negative two consequent MRD negative, then I discuss with the patient holding it. So basically everybody is on Revlimid at least for two to three years. And after that, if there has been two consequent MRD negative, then I discuss with the patient that to, to hold Revlimid and watch closely the myeloma markers. Although there is no randomized trial showing that approach is perfectly safe, but there are some single arm trials now that's coming out, like the MRD2 stop trial that was presented at ASH this year. Yeah. <clears throat> so I just wanted to add a point that uh, in our setting, I agree with you, Raj, that we are also giving lenalidomide at least for two, three years. And in patients who are willing to discontinue, we also do bone marrow examination and MRD before discontinuation. But I'm talking, I'm fortunate that I'm working in a public sector research institute, but the same practice is not something that is like very uniformly followed elsewhere. So in my conversations with my colleagues working elsewhere in India, so MRD is not something that people are doing routinely in clinical practice. It is something that is mostly limited to research institutes, academic center in India. Sounds good. All right, then we'll move on to early relapse. So now let's say this patient was in remission for roughly about five years post-transplant. And then at that point, it's starting to relapse biochemically, there is no crap symptoms yet, but the patient does meet, let's say the IMWG criteria for progression, that is M-spike more than 0.5 rise in M-spike. And so basically at this point, the question is that, will you start treatment just yet? Or will you wait and still closely monitor the patient to look for, wait for crap symptoms to occur or a rapid biochemical progression to occur? And in case you were to start treatment, what regimens do you typically pick at first relapse? Andres? So usually if there's no crab symptoms and the, the serologic progression is not too fast, then we can monitor the patients for a while. And if there's a concern or a high risk, as it's been defined, then we do pursue treatment even if there's no crab yet. So then we have a very few options to consider. And if it's an early relapse, you're probably not going to get a lot with the same regimen you received previously. So then what do you have in your toolkit? So if the resources are really limited, you're probably just ending up with more decks. You have more thalidomide. You have cyclophosphamide, and you have more bortezomib, and that's pretty much it. Maybe you can put in there melphalan, prednisone, and you don't get any more than that. So if you have some more uh, access, then maybe you can consider maybe pomalidomide or generic pomalidomide from India or lenalidomide, and then maybe carfilzomib. And that would be just minority of patients can actually access carfilzomib and anti-CD38 antibodies. And that is the crux of the issue. Patients with myeloma here have a poor survival because they don't have access to these expensive therapies. And we've actually shown 
in a paper published in Cancer by Dr. Lustarin, you can I can send you that you can see how much a patient with access to resources lives more than a patient just across the river in the same state that does not have access in that time. It was more about proteasome inhibitors, but we're going to update that in the era of monoclonal antibodies. And we're probably going to see worse difference because over here, it's like 1999, right? We still have, time does not pass. We're stuck at the same place. So this is a very difficult issue. In the private setting, we are leaning towards monoclonal antibodies as a first option after relapse. And even carfilzomib, if the patient is fit and is young, there are KRD, maybe, if they did not receive lenalidomide at the first time. So that would be our choice. So in the private setting, you are able to use like an anti-CD38 monoclonal antibody-based triplets like we would be using in the US. So you are able to access that. Okay. Definitely. Uh, we even have some griefing patients. Though that maybe is a discussion for another day, but we have a lot of CD antibodies and we have isatoximab and daratumumab here available. Sounds good. And in the public setting, do you ever use some of the older regimens at relapse? VAD, for example, vincristine, adriamycin, and dexamethasone? No, we don't really use a lot of chemotherapy in the relapse setting. VAD and this and Dr. Rubicin and so on. Not even bendamustine is unusual that we use it. We do some allos though. We do, then we are believers in this critical setting of allotransplant in myeloma. And the other issue is the age of patients. The age pyramid is very different in Mexico than in the US. I have a lot of patients with myeloma in their 40s. Now, when you have two treatment lines in your pocket, why do not consider allotransplant for a patient that is in remission? I think in when you have a lot of tools, you are likely to forget about allotransplant, but there are some interesting long-term follow-up papers that show that with the survivorship bias and so on, that they don't do as poorly. So we still consider allotransplants. And now with the haplodonors, then you can put a, an allodonor almost for everybody. So now we are bringing back allotransplants for myeloma until we can get a hold of some academic CAR-Ts and maybe do both if we're getting crazy. Sounds good. Yeah, it would be great to see the data since you guys are doing allos in this setting in young patients with early relapse. It would be great to see long-term data. So Aditya, would you treat this patient who is relapsing biochemically? I remember when you were in the US in clinic, we had some discussion like this one time that a patient was relapsing biochemically slowly and we were going to start treatment. And you had mentioned that in India, typically you would wait until crap symptoms. What would you, what do you think about so, this case? So generally we make decision on the basic of, basis of kinetics of this M-band and SFLC. If we have like rapid increase in M-band, maybe like doubling in one or two months, we generally repeat investigations after one month if we are not sure about our uh, next plan. And uh, definitely in some patients, actually, we have seen some of the patients having an MGUS-like state where small component of M-band actually persists or like uh, reappears after achievement of stringent CR. And otherwise, the patient is doing fine. We have patients where we have done bone marrow and MRD is still negative. But the patient's serum protein electrophoresis sometimes shows doubtful M-band. Having said that, definitely in any patient where the M-band is increasing rapidly, doubling on the next visit, SFLC is abnormal. Definitely in those patients, especially who have, especially those who have high-risk cytogenetics at baseline, 
will not wait for crab features will do bone marrow examination and uh, as andre said we have like availability of omalidomide carfilzomib and in this patient who is progressing on len i would be keen on uh, using actually bortezomib pomdex as one of the options because bortezomib was used 5 years ago in this patient and we know that in patients with the relapsed myeloma sometimes they do respond to the initial lines of therapy and regarding the daratumumab i think a very small proportion of our patients that we see in our practice have access to dara and it costs somewhere around 30 to 35000 us dollars the dara based regimens and although we do come across patients in our practice who travel business class to mskcc to get dara every 6 weeks apart from patients traveling like from 200 kilometers in public transport to get just vtd or vr that's good so you will use like pvd is a good regimen it's not that expensive so that would be a reasonable regimen yeah. and if the patient can afford only then anti cd38 monoclonal antibody even that yes. is very expensive maybe do you think india in india you guys will have access to like dara biosimilar or something like that soon which will be cheaper i think the patent for dara is still there to stay for a few more years but i'm sure the day it lasts we will have <laughs> generic dara next week or maybe a month because obviously the same thing happened with the rituximab the cost of rituximab at one time when it was launched in india it was like enormous and now i can have rituximab for something like 100 dollar 100 maybe and that was unimaginable a few years ago or 8 or 10 years ago so i think with generics the cost definitely comes down there is no doubt about it Sounds good. In the interest of time, I think we will go to the last question. So Eddie, you can go ahead with the clinic question on clinical trials. Yeah, an issue that you touched on a bit, Andres, that I'm very interested, or we're very interested to get both of your thoughts on, is clinical trials. To me, there are two views that have come across in various other contexts. On one hand, a lot of people feel that pharmaceutical companies exploit particular locations. to try and where different therapies are not available to have a, a lower standard control arm to make their investigational drug look better and that that includes places like australia by no means just low and middle income countries but places which don't have the same access to drugs as the us on the other hand some people argue that that actually in a setting where a patient doesn't have access to to a drug then even if 50% of your patients on a clinical trial can get access to drugs they wouldn't otherwise have access to through that clinical trial that's giving those patients on the clinical trial that benefit and those trials should continue to exist in the format that they do to enable that access to that group of patients who can access the trial kind of two two of the views that that we often hear i'd be very interested to hear your thoughts on the current situation and how we could change things with regard to clinical trials andres do you want to go first sure this is very interesting to me because we i've seen these discussions online and it's it's very interesting what do you feel as a as an investigator in a university in a public institution when a pharma company comes and brings a drug that these patients are never going to see so it's a happy moment even if it's not a great drug so we've had a lot of trials here you know these global responsor studies are usually either rcts and we are happy to enroll patients but the question is does the are we being used and we definitely are we are being used and but i don't think it's an evil uh, machiavellian scheme it's just you need to consider some points like academic institutions are the 
are mostly in public institutions in Mexico, for example, and even in, in other LMI. Research done in private institutions is not as common, at least in my country. So they're naturally going to migrate to public institutions where patients don't have post-particle therapy. So the question is, then, should the company pay for post-particle therapy? And I think mm, they should if they want to actually have an answer that is going to be valuable. But if they don't get pushed to do that, then it's never going to happen. So I think that's, I think it is an unfortunate thing. For example, we have uh, run the blinatumumab, getting a little sidetracked to ALL. We ran the blinatumumab arm uh, trials in our institution. Now ask me how many patients have actually received blinatumumab after the approval of the drug in our country. I can count them maybe with one hand. So is it fair that the company benefited from us running a trial and then never to be seen again if the patient does not have $50,000 for a cycle? Does the company have a responsibility towards the center that is filling their lining their pockets? And these are very philosophical questions that some investigators think that, particularly trialists, that they don't feel used. I think we need to ask investigators and even, but then again, we need more trials. Now we need good trials. We don't want useless drugs for our patients. Nobody does, but I don't see any other way around it, honestly. Actually, I agree to most of the points raised by Andre. So as far as Indian context is concerned, so actually there are some unique challenges that we face as far as like availability of clinical trials in India is concerned. So first of all, there is very limited access. And most of the trials are like pharma driven. There are very few in investigator initiated trials. And the reason is because of very stringent rules that have been like laid down by the regulatory authorities. Even if you if the patient has severe adverse effect, you have to compensate. So apart from funding, I think the stringent rules that the that we currently have, they are like major prohibitive factor. And the main thing is we don't have time. A hematologist in India, I see AML, I also see, I have to see thalassemia, hemophilia, ITP, autoimmune hemolytic anemia. I don't, hematologists in India don't have, I don't think we have dedicated time to do focused research in the form of clinical trials. And on top of that, we do not have infrastructure, basically, to conduct phase one or phase two trials. I was fortunate to visit Cleveland Clinic and meet Raj and Ashwin there. And I was actually very impressed to see actually the amount of workforce that you need to run trials. I shadowed Dr. Majel there and I could realize that you need number of people. You need a full team to actually do trials. And just like to conclude, I would say that there is a brighter side to it also. In India, I think India is one of the few countries where you will see VPD versus VRD trial in the frontline setting. Okay. I don't think US will be able to do that because formalist and revelimid are being made by the same company. And I will not be surprised in future if we have DARA RD versus VRD trial from India. So I think that kind of freedom is also something that may be like witnessed in our setting. But as a whole, this is an unmet need, definitely. And we need more infrastructure, more manpower, more time, more trained hematologists to 
do that. Great points. And I think coming back to one of the points that Andre's made that regarding post-protocol therapy, I think when a company is running a trial, like for example, let's say Daratumumab in frontline, and if they're running in a public institution in Mexico, for example, where patients don't have access to Daratumumab, they must provide Daratumumab and in, at first relapse in the control arm. I think that should be definitely mandated. But the thing is, who is going to mandate it, right? So either in the design phase, like FDA should maybe make them accountable or hold them to providing it. Otherwise, that's the question that who is going to force their hands into providing. I love what Aditya said about the research capacity in LMIC and the issue that who, who can force them, maybe the local investigators and the, and the regulators can do it, but they won't do it because they don't know what post-protocol therapy or its relevance is to the design of the trial. So we need more education and no protected time. We're not paid to the research. There are no stimulus. You don't have a team, you're alone. So there's these systemic barriers for physicians in LMICs that limit them from improving their own realities. So that's going to be very difficult to overcome. How can you resolve? You need to change the thought of administrators and the government. And this is very difficult to do. And are they going to invest in you? So it's, they don't even know what a data manager is, what a grant is, what's it for. So these are very difficult barriers to overcome. But, and on the other hand, there's you guys, right? There's these experts that have all the money in the world, in the leading institutions in the country that can help us, right? <laughs> so now that you've heard this, not, you cannot, right? So there's a lot we can do now. I'm very hopeful for the future because never have I imagined that I'd be in a podcast with people from all around the world, communicating and talking to each other. And how much we can achieve together. And we've talked about this, Rush, you recently sent me a paper on alternate day pomalidomide. These are the type of studies, as Aditya said, that we can do here and we can learn a lot. Now with bispecific antibodies that are coming, we are definitely going to study lower doses and alternate set schedules because the reality is that pharma companies do not know what the minimum effective dose of their drugs is. They have no idea. They just have the marketed drug that is okayed by the regulators. So we need, we can study and it's ethical. The issue is that here, the average hematologist wants to imitate what is going on in high income countries because that is the quote unquote standard. So they don't know, they, they need to be educated into having a, a different mindset and to change the strategy according to their own reality and studying it. So I think that's what I would maybe insist on. And education is a big part of it, and that needs to come from experts like you. Yeah, on that point, Andres, there was a great trial just out in JCO actually by Vijay Patil at Al looking at low-dose PD-1 inhibitor in head and neck cancer that found that about 120th of the dose was still very effective in that setting. And so I have definitely been thinking about that with regard to bispecifics. Could it be that that uh, you could get one vial and share it between a few people and maybe they wouldn't get so much T-cell exhaustion as a nice side effect of using a lower dose? So I think that point around the dosing paradigm and how clinical trials, early phase clinical trials are set up to, to find doses is really from an era, an era of cytotoxic 
chemotherapy rather than immunotherapy. So that is, yeah, a great opportunity, I think, moving forward. Sounds good. Any last thoughts? I think you were going to say something. Just last comment. I, I have heard Dr. Vincent Rajkumar and Dr. Shaji Kumar sharing their experience while conducting BRD versus the KRD trial. And they all always emphasize the role of cooperative groups in like conducting those kind of trials. And I think the way ahead, one of the important things that the myeloma experts in India are doing, they are coming on board. So we have this Indian Myeloma Academic Group and which is headed by Professor Pankaj Malhotra. He's my mentor and guide also. And we have another platform called Hematology Cancer Consortium. So I think we need more kind of collaborations within the country and with, the, with our colleagues in high-income countries also so that we can do meaningful research and make our own resource-adjusted guidelines. Yeah, and also most importantly, like research that is like relevant to, for example, minimal effective dose of bispecifics or, or this alternate schedule that will save costs that is very relevant to LMICs, for example. All right. Thank you, everybody, for joining us and for your time. And it was great to have people from all across, from Australia, India, Mexico, and US in the same call. It was a great experience. And we, I'm sure our audience will love it. We learned a lot from you guys. And hopefully we'll bring you guys back again to talk about other hematologic malignancies in, in, in treatment in low-middle income countries. Thank you. Great. Thank you. Thanks a lot for having me. Right. Thank you. It's a great experience. Thank you. Thank you.